Uh, I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. And the sermon notes in your bulletin, I know you'll want to have those handy as well. Uh, we mentioned already um, a baptism service coming up at Grace. I try to let you know uh, Sunday morning to Sunday morning uh, where your staff is at on any given Sunday morning. This morning, Daniel Bingham is preaching up at Central Bible Church. Uh, Pastor Tyler is preaching down at Grace Community Church. And Pastor Craig is preaching over at Temple Baptist. So that's where your staff is is uh, located this morning. But if you look at your sermon notes, you can see how I want to begin today. As we begin a new year together, I want to remind us why we at Sunset Bible Church routinely preach through Bible books and why we preach from the Bible in the first place. Uh, This is a day when people do all kinds of things in pulpits in the name of Christianity, and um, I just want to remind us why we do what we do. And I, I, would, I would put it like this. Uh, we preach from the Bible, from this pulpit, because in this world there is nothing else to hold on to that's sure and true and points us to the living God. The Bible is the inerrant, authoritative, inspired Word of God. Amen. It is His Word. It's how we know who God is and what He is like. It's how we get to know him through his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, Redeemer, and friend. It's from the Bible that we learn what's right and wrong. Otherwise, we would be left to just guess and make it up and see what everybody else thinks and do it by sniffing the wind and say, what do you all think? No, it's, it's, in, the, it's in the Bible that you find these things. What does God say on this matter? And so we come here routinely to the Word of God. We preach through Bible books so that those of us who preach don't just look around and say, what do you feel like? Let's go here. I'd like that one. How about over here? No, we preach through Bible books because it it helps us to get a sense of what the Bible is all about. It makes sure that we don't skip passages we'd rather not address. It also helps all of us because we say this a lot here. We mean it. Our goal is, is those who preach is, is to help all of us better understand the Bible so that as we read it throughout the week, it makes more sense to us. So we try to give a big picture and how things fit together and the order and structure and the storyline. So we work hard at those things so that, so that all of us grow as students of the word of God. And I'll just say this as well, and then and off we go for the morning. But it's, it's our goal is, as we preach that, that, that God's people, we all, as we come, that we would come to hear the word of the living God rather than a particular preacher. Uh, it's, it, that should be secondary. It's the scriptures uh, enlivened by the Spirit of God, pointing us to Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior, so that we can know the one who is the living God. So I just remind us of all these things in a day when people do all kinds of things in pulpits and so on. I'm not against cute stories and funny jokes if they're truly funny and good stories if they have a point. But the the meat and potatoes, the bread and butter, the main thing has to be the Scripture. Must. It must be. So anyway, that's why we do what we do. I want to begin the year by reminding us of this, okay? And at this point, I'd like to pray together. We'll put this in context of where we're going today, and off we go into the Gospel of Mark. But pray with me, if you would, please. 
Our Father, thank you so much uh, for the word of God. Thank you for giving it to us. We would not know you otherwise. We would not know what you're like and your great work, your redeeming work through Jesus. We wouldn't know. But you have given us the word of God so that we could know you. We can know you. We do know you through Jesus. We thank you for this. Thank you that in this world where human opinion seems to make up everything, uh, that we can come to one place where it is sure and accurate and right. The word of God. So help us even this morning as we come to the text in in front of us and uh, the other issues that will pull us back into this part of our study that you would direct our, our thoughts. Thank you for those joining us online, uh, joining us elsewhere, other parts of this state, other parts of this country, and indeed other parts of the world. We're grateful. Pray your blessing on each of us as we open the scriptures in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, as you know, we are returning to our study in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We have done what we do every year, and that is to take uh, a step out during Advent to preach an Advent series that fits with uh, the presentation on this stage every year, that seven-year plan uh, of of, uh, teaching uh, through the high points of of God's redemption plan. But today we come back to the, the Gospel of Mark. And so on your sermon notes, you have a few things there under the heading of returning to the gospel of Mark. I'm not going to go through all of those. If you were with us this last fall, uh, some of these are familiar. We gave you kind of an orientation to the gospel of Mark. You're remembering, I would imagine, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are what we would call the four gospels in the Bible. Gospel meaning good news. And it's four tellings of the story of Jesus, each one from a little bit of a different angle. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the story of Jesus in some different way, including um, common details in many areas and some different details or different emphases uh, in different different places. So, so we're looking at one of those tellings of the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. We mentioned in that under that fourth bullet point here, I'm just orienting us to where we left off. Uh, when we, we were here last in November, we looked at the, the first half of Mark chapter 5, and I gave you a theological uh, term, okay? And I mentioned uh, Mark's enacted Christology. Isn't that cool? Man, you can just let that roll off your tongue. And we gave a definition to that because it it helps us understand the text. Mark is not just telling you certain things. He's showing us. Okay? So he's showing us who Jesus is. He's telling us, oh yes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as he begins the story. But in the stories that are told, he is illustrating. So we saw at the last part of chapter 4, uh, there in the boat is Jesus calms a storm, and the, 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 the disciples say to one another, who is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. There's not verse 42 where they answer the question. They ask a question and leave it. See? So that's Mark's enacted Christology. It's intended that that those who experience these things, and we who now, centuries later, read it, that we would ask the same question and think about it. Who is this then? Who is this in the text? And then you come into chapter 5. The last time we were here, we looked at verses 1 through 20. Jesus casts a demon out of this this demonized man. And again, people are are, uh, captured with fear. Jesus, please leave us for all kinds of reasons. What's going on? And we ask again, who is this? Who 
who can who can do things like that? Now, uh, Marx enacted Christology that we're learning about Jesus as story upon story are, are, are told. Okay, now you come to the section you're called today's text. Before I read it, I want to kind of tell you what we're going to read. All right, so verses 21 to 43 are big preaching text today, but it's what some scholars call a Markan sandwich. You've never heard that in the Bible. It makes you want lunch. I know. Uh, a sandwich. By sandwich, it, it means you start a story, and then you interject another one, and then you return to the first. Mark does that several times. If you pay attention in your study of Mark, all of us in small groups are reading and studying, talking about the same text week after week. You'll notice this approach several times. He begins a story, interjects another, and returns to the first. You go, what is all this about? Now, in this case, of course, in a very special way, there are great commonalities between those stories. So so you look for those. And I've given you some here uh, under this section called today's text. The two stories embody shamefulness. Shame is mentioned. We'll say a few things about shame, which is, may I say, something that, it, that, that affects many of us. It's part of the human experience in some ways is feelings of shame. Again, more on that. Uncleanness. What is that? Ceremonial uncleanness. Hopelessness. In other words, there's nowhere else to go here, folks. You have a better idea? You, you, you got another savior? <laughs> you got somebody else to call the dead back to life? We'll go for it. So hope, hopelessness. If you don't have Jesus, you got nothing in both of these cases. Okay, so there's, there's commonalities. I also want us to notice the person of Jesus. If you only notice the work of Jesus and not the person, you miss something important. I want you to see his tenderness. I want you to see his heart. I want you to see his tender touch to people who are hopeless or unclean. In both of these cases, it's females. His tender touch, his kind heart. If you, if you don't notice those things just dripping from the text, you'll have missed something important. So I want to read the whole sandwich, okay, verses 21 to 43. Look for those details, look for the commonalities, and then we'll talk about it together under three different headings, okay? That's where we're going to go. God's word then, as I read Mark 5, starting verse 21. <clears throat> and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side... A great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. That's the Sea of Galilee, of course. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather worse. It's like a layer upon layer. Uh, same participle shows up over and over again. She had heard the reports about Jesus, came up behind him in the crowd, touched his garment for she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. Wow. Immediately, the flow of her blood dried up. She felt in her body she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? 
His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? He looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Be well, be well. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. He put them all outside and took the child's father and mother, those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Mm Mm-hmm. You suppose? Yeah, understatements. And he strictly charged them that they should tell no one, that no one should know this. Told them to give her something to eat. Girl's hungry by now. Man, what a journey she's had. Okay, so what do we do with this? What do we do? You saw the sandwich. Story, another story, return to the first. Now, I I have three headings here, and I I just want to talk about them in this order. Uh, Death, first of all. Okay, so death meets and humbles us all. I see here, including important people. So, so verse 21, Jesus crosses back to the west side. You remember that chronologically and in terms of geography here, Jesus is in the north part of the Sea of Galilee. Again, if you have a study Bible and you look at the back, you can find the land of Israel, the Sea of Galilee, kind of toward the north. And Jesus did a lot up in that area of Galilee. The, the first part of this story, he goes over to the east side. That's where the demonized man is. Remember, I said it was kind of like... Um, Um, you know, a a military strike force, some commandos. They go over there, and really they're after just this one guy. That's on the east side, more the Gentile area, and now they're coming back uh, to the other side. So back to the the west side you'd have here, and a crowd. You remember my comments about crowds in the book of Mark? Remember this? Uh, We pointed out some chapters ago that in the gospel of Mark, crowds, crowds are not always a good thing. Sometimes they're obstructionists. They're in the way. Some of them are curious. Some are antagonistic. But every time you see a crowd, don't go, wow, this is great. Jesus had a big following because very often the crowd gets in the way of people coming to Jesus, really coming in faith. So it's interesting every time you see the word crowd, what's going on? Well, the crowd is here and they're, you know, he's uh, just getting into ministry again on the other side. And here comes Jairus. We're not told that he had to jockey through the crowd, but the crowd shows up again in verse 24. The crowd is following him and thronged about him. You don't really get a sense here that the crowd is helpful. These different things that Mark is helping us with. So now, Jairus, verse 22, the ruler of the synagogue, that doesn't mean necessarily he was like the biggest man on campus. Uh, A synagogue in the day had lay people who were 
um, in a leadership role. He's not a priest. He's not like what we would say in our terms. He's not like the ordained person in charge of the place. He's like the head trustee or the head deacon. Um, He's the guy or one of the people. Some synagogues had one key leader. Some had more than one. Who's got the keys to the door? And they're making sure the lights and the heat are on and cleaning up after people. They're kind of running the place, okay? So he's, he's got some leadership responsibilities, certainly, and I, I find myself asking some questions. And here, I, I've given you several on your study notes. I hope that as you read the Bible, you ask questions and put yourself into the text. If you only hurry through the story, uh, you're going to miss a lot, like a lot of the human elements. So I ask things like, so who's Jairus? We're given his name here. Um, Jesus has done things in Capernaum and in some of these other areas before. He's a leader of a synagogue. Has Jesus been in his synagogue? Was, was Jairus in the room in chapter 3? Remember where Jesus heals the lame man on Sabbath? And everybody got all upset about it. Remember that? Was Jairus there? Why does he know when his daughter is critically ill, by the way, the terms he uses, my daughter is at the point of death. It's the idea that she's declining rapidly. He's not there to chat. He's coming because this is, he, this is his last hope. You know, his daughter is, is, is quite ill, clearly declining, clearly headed toward death. And maybe his wife, well, we don't know this. Maybe his wife said, honey, do something. Just do something. And he said, well, what am I supposed to do, honey? I got clinic, children's hospital, medevac. Okay, just kidding. That would be our term. What do, we, what do you want me to do? Well, what about that Jesus guy? He's reported to heal the sick and raise the dead. Why don't you go get him? Well, then I won't be here with you. I know, but go. And off goes dad. I don't know a lot of those details. Do you? We just know that he comes. And it says here, he, he, he fell at Jesus' feet. That means something. Reverence, respect, begging. And it says he implored him earnestly. Come. Would you come? Can you help? You can just imagine what other words poured out of his mouth. Probably more than is in the text. My little daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so she may be well and live. This is a dad who is desperate. Who at this moment will do anything. Your dad... Your parent, um, some of you have had children, people in our church family have had children who were at the point of death. Some have walked with their children through, through death. But if you're a parent, in any case, you know what it would be like to know a child is, is physically failing and you've got to do something for goodness sakes. And that's their urgency here. Now, if, if Jairus has held back before, if he's been a, you know, one of those guys in the crowd going, huh, I wonder what's going on here. At this point, forget it. He's coming full on. If you can do anything, could you, could you come and, and say something or touch her or just, I mean, for goodness sakes. So Jesus comes. He starts to, he starts to come. Uh, that's verse 24. He went with him. A great crowd followed. And I can just imagine Jairus saying, I didn't ask you, right? I don't need a crowd. I just need him. I mean, let's go. That's where the sandwich turns. But I, before you do, uh, if you look at my little bullet points here, I'm, just, I'm wanting you to feel the distress. I'm wanting you to feel the urgency that the dad has. I'm wanting you to feel what happens in verse 35, as we read it a moment ago, when after this middle part, uh, where someone comes and says, she just died. What's the emotion at that moment? Can you imagine? 
You know, so don't just read these stories like, okay, and then this happened and put some more sugar in my coffee. No, here's the dad just got the worst news he could possibly get. Now, we, we forget some of these things, meaning we live in the day of clinics, as I mentioned, in hospitals and helicopters and so on. Now, that doesn't overcome everything. I know that. But at the same time, um, infant mortality, childhood mortality today isn't what it once was. Amen. We're really grateful for that. Because back in the day, um, boy, you look at a lot of cultures and civilizations, infant mortality, childhood mortality was significant. Uh, 50% or higher, and that's assuming there's no big plagues and illnesses. That's just normal life. Without medicine and penicillin and trips to the doctor, you, parents said goodbye to a lot of kids. They did. And so this is, this is not unusual in the setting of the day. Um, but the distress of this, and then I, I look at verse 35, I look at verse 38, as he shows up at the house again, again, I'm jumping ahead in the story, I realize, I'm just after his emotional um, situation, what he's feeling, when he gets back to the house, and they got the professional mourners there already, more about them in a minute, but people wailing, can you imagine this, just rip your heart right out. So just just feel the angst here, death meets and humbles us all, including Important people, I put on your notes here, death is the ultimate indignity, the ultimate uncleanness. Uh, several years ago, I mentioned this book to you. It, periodically, I give book references, you might have noticed. But I read this uh, back in, I think it came out in 2018. It's called Remember Death. Um, Matthew McCullough, really a good book. You might think, oh, I don't want to read anything like that. Uh, you know, the point of it is you, you really should. Because what he's after here isn't just to scare anybody to death. But it's to say, hey, uh, excuse me, everybody, bulletin board here, we're mortals. Anybody noticed? Anybody noticed that we're all, none of us are getting out of here alive? Anybody noticed that, as they say, the statistics on death are quite impressive? One out of every one of us dies eventually. <laughs> yeah, so he says here, death is a fundamental human experience uniting all humans across time and space, race and class. No kidding. Death is no less inevitable than it's ever been. Many of us don't have to see it or even think about it as a daily presence in our lives. Yeah, we're isolated from death. And again, this book is not about um, like being morbid. It's about living well in light of your mortality. That's the point. Um, are, are, do you, are you aware you're not staying forever? And you, you can live with hope and joy with that awareness. That's what this book is about. Remember death, the surprising path to living hope. Basically, he's saying, don't live in denial of this. No, we're mortals. We're on our way. Remember the song, this world is not my home? Yeah, I'm just a passing through. Very quickly, you might have noticed. So, so death... Meeting us, humbling us all. Yes, indeed. The ultimate uncleanness. A dead body, back in the day, produced uncleanness. Okay, I want to move to that next section, that middle part of the sandwich, okay? This gal that we met, as we read, starting in verse 25, and, and as Mark tells her story, it's like rapid fire telling of her situation. She's had this problem for 12 years. She has suffered. She has spent. She's no better, but rather is worse. 
And, you know, I would be very foolish as a, as, a, as a male if I were to say, you know, I know exactly how she feels. Every woman in the world here would say, oh, really? You know exactly how she feels, do you? Well, brilliant. Don't worry. I was raised with five sisters. I don't know how she feels. But I do know what the text tells us. That this has been going on for 12 years. I know culturally she's ceremonially unclean. So is anybody who touches her. Is she married? I don't know. Does she have kids? I don't know. But if anybody who touches you is unclean for 12 years, that presents a certain problem. You're supposed to kind of hold back from crowds. Here she's going to walk through a crowd, technically making everybody she bumps into unclean. Well, that's really dandy. Merry Christmas to you. Wow, she spent all she has. She spent all kinds of money. Desperate, a little bit of help here, please. Physicians, who are the physicians? Well, they had midwives to help with childbirth, but more doctors in the day were male than female. Thanks for your help. I'll take your money. This this is a tough situation for this guy. 12 years and no end in sight. Can you imagine? Wow. Wow. I put on your notes there, that first bullet point, probably suspected of hidden and egregious sin. Uh, You remember us talking about this before? You find hints of this in the Bible, and indeed it represents the culture of the day. The idea was that if someone had some long-term problem, especially a long-term problem, it's probably because God is smacking them because they did something. You know that? It's like John 9, the man born blind. Remember the question? Teacher or rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Because there's an assumption. you got this long-term problem. Somebody did something and God is smacking you. So you can just say to this gal, I can just imagine, this is the shame element. So you've had this problem for 12 years, eh? Uh-huh. Okay. So what have you done? Wouldn't you love to live with that? This is probably your fault. What moral impurity has taken place in your life? Come on, come on. What are you hiding? And even if it's never said, the assumption of those who know. Think, okay, probably some hidden sin. It's probably her fault. Shame, shame. Um, Today's a two-book day. Ed Welch. Uh, This is a good one. It's called Shame Interrupted. He just takes, takes the whole issue of shame and talks about it. How God lifts the pain of worthlessness and rejection. He says inside chapter 1 as he begins the book, Look under anger, fear, and guilt, and you will find a root of shame. He gives a definition here. He says, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. Shame is that. Shame. Shame is that sense that you wish people didn't know something about you, but your fear that they probably do. Shame is that that weight that never goes away. He says later, the Bible, as it turns out, is all about shame and its remedy. That interesting? The Bible, he says, is about shame from start to finish. The shame of sin, the shame of true guilt, the shame of moral impurity, the shame of people finding out what you're really like. 
the, the weight of trying to pretend like you're not, whatever that is, shame. Well, this woman knows something about shame. Now, I, I mentioned here, second bullet point, it's interesting to me as verse 25 uh, steps into the, to the, into the story, this woman comes and, and she ends up touching him and Jesus, we're told, um, perceiving himself, in verse 30, turns around in the crowd. Okay, what's he doing at this moment? He's stopping. He's stopping his journey with Jairus, whose daughter is dying. Can you imagine Jairus at this moment going, lady, get a grip. My kid is dying. Oh, we'll, we'll be right back. Uh, uh, can you imagine Jairus? Jesus, though, seems to be placed within time in, 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 throughout his, the, the stories of Jesus, the Gospels. Not in a hurry. Time for people. Time to know them to know their name and to know their need. You're ready for this? Time to see them. Really to see them. How many times do you hear somebody say, I value this moment because I felt seen. Jesus saw people. And so here, this lady steps into uh, his life and into the mix. He sees her in her need. He sees her as just as valuable as Jairus and his need with a daughter. He sees her. I I, I think about the way we often, um, (laughs) the way we often interact with time. Can I be blunt? Not that good, huh? We race from time to time. Uh, we go places. We're in a hurry. We're worried about being late. I have to say, uh, one of my, one of my um, uh, stories in my life that makes me makes me smile and laugh. I suppose years ago in youth ministry, we had a, a good uh, number of youth leaders who were a part of our our ministry, and one of our gals. Um, well, let's just put it this way: she was always late, always hurrying, but so cheerful about it. Right? She was never burdened. She was that person. She was a school teacher. If she's going to listen to this, she knows exactly who she is. Um, but I remember one time pulling up behind her at a traffic light. She was on her way to school. I knew what time she was supposed to be there. She had, you know, if she hit every green light, she was going to make it. But, but she's screeching to a halt because she missed the, the, the green light. And she's got a cup of coffee or whatever beverage, probably tea, on the dashboard. She's got a bagel in her mouth. And she's brushing her hair. I thought, honey, that is, that is so, it was just her. And if you had talked to her in that moment, she'd have pulled the bagel out and said, yeah, well, it's me again. She would not have been all stressed and worried. But the bagel, and, and I didn't want to watch from there. Because I knew she was going to do all of those things from there to school. Um, and then in she went. Well, time. Jesus, Jesus, I'm just saying here, is interrupted. No, there's no indication in the text that he's irritated or that he brushes this gal off. No, he stops. I, I appreciate that. He lives within time. I mentioned here John 11, of course. Even though people at times told him he was late, right? Remember John 11? Lazarus dies, and it, Jesus, it says, waits two days before he goes to be with them. And Lazarus dies in the meantime. Both girls, you, you just have to remember the conversation. Both girls, Mary and Martha, show up to talk to Jesus. Both of them say to him, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. What's that mean? You're late. You're late. And your lateness cost my brother his life. 
Just pointing it out. Yeah, you're late, Jesus. May I just say, um, he's never late. He's never late. There's a colloquial phrase we use. Hopefully you don't. I don't mean to shame you if you do. It's all over Christendom. People say, and then God showed up. It always makes me extremely theologically uncomfortable when someone says God showed up because it suggests that there was a moment that he wasn't there. You mean he wasn't there three days ago? Because I think he was. He was there in his active presence caring. So you, you don't have to say God showed up. I know what we mean. We meant God acted. We just say it, may I say, poorly. Theologically incorrect. No, he, God showed up. Okay, well... Fingernails on a chalkboard to me. Um, Jesus isn't late. He knows the need in your life and in mine. He's not in a hurry. He's not in a hurry. And he's never, he's never late. Okay? So please, if, you know, if we could wrap our theological minds around that and live in it, it would be good for us. It really would. So the lady, as I mentioned here, third bullet point, she doesn't have faith for one last try. She, she's longing for anonymity. It's like she sneaks up behind him, touches his robe, and she knows immediately, as only she could, I'm well. I, I'm well. She knew immediately. We haven't had any other conversation. It was that quick. She touched his garment, and and at this moment, she's still anonymous, which is what she wants. She wants privacy. She would love to just sneak right back to the crowd and go home and resume a normal life. And that's the moment where Jesus stops and says, excuse me here, who touched me? Now, there's great theological debate about this moment. Uh, It has to do with the incarnation. What what is it? Jesus Jesus was the God-man. What did he know? What did he not know? There are people who over the uh, uh, cup of coffee would suggest Jesus knew the whole time exactly who it was. And he's just waiting for her to, 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 to identify herself. He knows. He's like going, who touched me? <laughs> oh, well, it was you. There are those who would see it this way. Others who would say like, well, no, this is probably not unless the father had revealed it to him. Spirit of God told him that it might have been one of the things he didn't know. Jesus said, I don't know the day or the hour or the return of the son of man. So there were th- certain things in, his, in, in the incarnation that Jesus set aside. So I, I bet if we were to discuss that in your small groups, don't spend a lot of time on it because you can't be definitive. So stop that. That's not the main point. But it's interesting to discuss, okay? Did he know? Did he not know? Well, regardless, he said, who touched me? And he looks around. I'm in verse 32 and 33. The woman knows what happens, comes in fear, trembled, fell down before him, just like Jairus did. I hope you caught that as I read the text. Fell down before him. This sign of great respect tells the whole story. So, so she's exposed. Anonymity aside, she's going to tell the whole story, which is a story, by the way, of praise to God, isn't it? It, it, this is this really what it's about. Lady, at this moment, bless you. It's not about you. God has healed you. Amen. See? So tell the story for goodness sakes. Uh, don't, don't let shame keep you from telling the mighty works of God. No, he's done it. He has done it. So tell the story and set aside the, the, any, any perceived shame. Wow. 
Jesus isn't made unclean by his contact with unclean people. He doesn't shy away from lepers hurting people or the shameful. Um, which makes me wonder about all of us. Even in Christian communities, there are things sometimes that we hope people don't find out. Fear that if people found out, they wouldn't accept us or they'd look sideways at us or you'd see people whispering. Did you know he or she does this? Struggle with that? Has a problem with? Has this addiction? Hmm? Wow. I just want to remind you that the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the good news, the Jesus who is, who is himself good news, isn't put off by your hidden shame. He doesn't look down his nose. He doesn't look cross-eyed at you. He doesn't say, oh, you're a second-rate person. No, he knows your name. He knows right where you are. He knows your need. He sees. He is not infected by our uncleanness. No, he is the one who absorbs that in himself. He is not made unclean. Rather, he extends cleanness through his work on the cross. He paid our, our debt. He paid our sin and shame when he died on the cross. So rather than being put off by sinners, Jesus, no, what a, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul, we sang earlier. And I don't want you to miss this detail. Verse 34, this tender care, this is so personal. He gives this unnamed woman a name. He calls her daughter. Family, my child. Now, Jesus, of course, chronologically, probably early 30s as we understand the life of Jesus. How old is she? Well, she's had this problem for 12 years. And if you understand biology at all, I'm just going to guess she's in her 30s or 40s. I'm, I'm good at this. It's called math. Learned it in <laughs> middle school. <laughs> Younger than that. He calls her daughter daughter probably similar age someplace in there he gives her a name it's a family name i love that now i move to my third element called the resolution the author of life confronts death we've read the text i want to move to that part where jesus comes to the family okay so i'm 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 coming then to verse 38 uh, Jesus, with the ruler of the synagogue, comes to the house. The conversation with the woman is now done. Jesus sees a commotion. We don't know how far the journey was, but it took a little while, apparently, because there was time enough for the professional mourners to show up. And according to the history of the day, even a poor family was obligated, uh, just in terms of social custom, to provide at least one, are you ready, a wailing woman. There were people who did this. And then a, a few flute players. Even if you were dirt poor, you better come up with money if there's death for a wailing woman and some, some flute players. That's what you did. And so that would be a, a cultural sign that a tragedy has taken place in this house. It sounds really weird to us. It, you might think of it as similar in our day to what it would happen in your neighborhood if there were sirens and the fire trucks came and the police cars came and then the coroner pulled up. And you would, right away the neighbors would know something terrible happened in that house. I remember that happening in our neighborhood several years ago, a uh, couple houses over, three houses over, when um, I think somebody might have called me, and I think somebody, one of the other neighbors, and says, you might want to come back to the neighborhood. And I did, and yeah, 
wow, here's, here's this neighbor that I know, his wife, uh, and in this case, it had died in a tragic way, and um, he was by himself. And it was, I'm glad I could come and be with him as a friend. But there was, this, there was a cultural uh, signal that something terrible had happened. Wailing women, tragic. The, the, the tears, crying tears. Jesus comes and says, what's the commotion about? And this, isn't this great? Verse 39. She's not dead. She's sleeping. And, of course, people laughed at him. They laughed at him. You know, I, I, Sometimes people assume that ancient peoples didn't understand death. You'll hear this in, in the uh, various expressions from people who criticize the Bible. They'll, they'll say things like, well, you know, they, she probably passed out. The girl's unconscious. What do they know about death? May I say this? An awful lot more than you do. Because back then, most death took place in the home. Today, more death takes place in institutionalized settings. Not always. Some of us have had people die in our homes or have been very present when a death occurs. But back then, that's kind of the way it always was. And if you had your children and so on, older folks living in a similar house, no, death was not that big of a stranger. And if you have seen death, as many of you have, you know that death tends to be unmistakable. Coloration change, immediate. The cessation of breathing. Death... Death is pretty marked if you've been around at all. So for um, them to say, oh, she's, you know, for us to look back at them and say, well, they, they didn't, she probably just passed. No, 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 don't, don't, don't insult the people of old. They did understand death. Jesus says she's not dead, but sleeping. They laughed. Yeah, no kidding. He put them all outside and comes in and this, this moment you, you just have to place yourself in it. He takes this little girl whose, whose little body is not rising and falling with air, whose, whose cheeks are white, lips probably blue. He takes her hand and says, little girl. Or you could also translate that, little lamb. Little girl, little girl, arise. At that moment, the one who is the resurrection, John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Not only I caused the resurrection, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. The one who is the resurrection took this little girl by the hand and said, rise. The voice will one day call you from the grave if Jesus doesn't come before. That same voice called this little girl. Rise, And at that very moment, her cheeks begin to return to color. Her little lips return to their normal uh, color as well. Her little chest begin to rise and fall. And mom and dad, can you imagine? I mean, live into that for a moment. Just try it. Can you imagine? It says they were, what did I remember? Overcome with amazement. You try to put words to that. Overcome. Oh, honey. Jesus, you did it. Little girl, your name, you're, alive, you're okay. You're, I mean, you, you, could you have words for this moment? The one who is the resurrection of the life is not put off by death. His, his plans are not stymied by death. No, he knows what he's doing. He holds our lives in his hands. And at this moment, he could call the dead to life. He did it. She got up, walked around. She knew how to walk. She's 12 years old. 
course. She knew how to walk. Jesus says, feed her. I don't know. Other places you, you, you remembered eating is a sign of life. Jesus did that after he was raised from the dead. He was showing about his resurrection body. He ate a piece of fish. Uh, sign of life. Interesting. Interesting. Feed the girl. She's been on a journey. The author of life confronts death. I want to go to that section on your notes called responding to God's word. Could I just press on a couple of things here, please? The Bible says a lot about cleanness and uncleanness, honor and shame, and life and death. I would say guilt, true guilt and false guilt. The Bible says a lot about these things. Some of us live with false guilt. We feel guilty over things that are not a sin that we don't need to feel guilty about, but we sure feel the guilt. That's shame, by the way. True guilt means that's what you feel when you're guilty. You, you did something you shouldn't have done, or you failed to do something you should have. But, but this, this, is, this is Jesus. Our Savior takes those things. This is why Jesus went to the cross, to bear our sin, our guilt, and our shame. Jesus died a shameful death, the death of a common criminal. More could be said about that. Jesus died in our place. He bore our sin and shame in his body on the cross. And the power of the cross of Jesus, and I said it before in passing, but I want to say it again now. Often we talk about the power of the cross, or we talk about the good news of the gospel. And I I appreciate those are expressions and so on. At the same time, the, the gospel isn't just a story. It's Jesus. The, the good news isn't just a, a system. It's a savior. It's the, you'd say the power of the cross. Yes, and I say that too. It's the power of Jesus. Let's never forget there's a person here who is our savior, redeemer, and friend. He's the one who knows you and he knows me. He knows our hidden stuff. He knows all about it. And even back then, as he said, come to me. So today he says, come to me too. Come to me. Sin and shame, hidden things. Things you hope nobody ever finds out about. Come to me. I already know, by the way. Come. Come to me. The one who comes, Jesus said, I will in no wise cast out. Come to me. If you've never come in simple faith, trusting Christ as your Savior from sin, for goodness sakes, what are you waiting for? And if there are other things that you need to talk to him about, come. Come today. Talk to him. Tell him the whole story. Just like this woman fell down before him, spilled the whole thing. So, so you do the same thing. And spill the whole story. Tell them the whole thing. And there you will meet grace and forgiveness and mercy. It's who Jesus is. Well, and I just close with that little reminder. You think you're important? (laughs) Or not? Sometimes people think of power and position and money and wealth. And Jesus pays attention to the important and not so much. It isn't like that at all. No. Synagogue ruler? Unnamed woman. To both, he brings his healing. I'd like to pray for us that God will do his deep work in us through through Jesus himself. Would you stand with me, please, as we close our time here? Father, I thank you for this kind of a savior, Jesus. What a friend for sinners. I thank you, Lord, that, that even in this room, all of us are known by you and loved by you, our savior, Redeemer and friend. Thank you that there is nothing that in our lives that we have done or that others have done to us or things associated with us that would keep us away from being known and loved by you. Help us to live into the truth of the gospel story. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior.
We pray with gratefulness in his name. Amen.